Father, thank you for your mercies that are new every morning, even on thundery, rainy days. I thank you that we can trust you, that we can learn of you. Uh, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we go through this next passage in Acts. Teach us about the glories of Christ and the worthiness uh, of Him to press on. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Acts 16. We're continuing our, um, our trip through Philippi. And the last time that we were in Acts, we took a brief tour last week, last time we were in Acts, uh, we saw the gospel quietly transform the heart of Lydia. During the narrative of Philippi, Luke highlights three people there. Uh, one is Lydia, and the other two we'll see today. Uh, it, it's a, a, a servant girl, a slave girl, who has some peculiar attributes. And then, uh, at the end of the narrative today, we'll see a Philippian, the Philippian jailer. So we're going we're gonna to kind of walk through this, starting in verse 16. Uh, and let's, uh, let's begin there. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now that's interesting. A couple of things here. One, where are they going? Where are they headed? Place of prayer. Place of prayer, what was that? We'll just kind of review here. The down by the river, kind of a synagogue-esque place, the closest thing they had in Philippi, because there were no men there, Jewish men, to constitute a synagogue. So these God-fearing women would go down the river, and that's where we first met Lydia. Paul uh, is going down there again, and it says many days, so he continues to go down there. Um, what does this tell you about how Paul viewed his work? It's very important. He continues to go down to the river. Why would he do that? What's he doing? I mean, he already shared the gospel with them once. He's following through. Following through how? What's he doing? What do you think? Go ahead. He's probably teaching them theology. He's doing a systematics class down by the river. He's walking them through... Christ and the Scriptures. They may have already come to faith, but they need to be strengthened and instructed and discipled. He, it's not just a notch in his belt, I got this woman to pray a prayer of salvation. I'm going down there to again, probably uh, evangelize some others who maybe had not come to faith yet, but were still interested in hearing. And the ones who had, he's instructing them, who is Jesus, what has he done? And what is he calling us to do? Right? He's, he's doing a one-to-one, -one with one-to-many with them down by the river. Um, he, it's not just notches in the belt for new converts. He wanted strong disciples and was willing to spend a lot of time with them 
to see that happen, to strengthen this budding church. Okay, what does Luke tell us about this? There's only really a few actors in this first section. What does he tell us about this girl? First of all, what is her social status? Slave. She's a slave. What does that, what does that imply? She has no control. She has no control over herself. And that's true in more ways than one, right? I mean, what, what's she doing? What are, they, what are her owners um, marketing her as? A fortune teller. The Greek here literally means she had a python spirit. It's the only time I could find this term used in the New Testament. The python spirit. And it indicates uh, a very specific type of situation that's going on here. The python was the symbol of the god Apollos. And the way the Greek and, and Roman myths went, uh, Apollos kills the snake that was guarding the oracle of Delphi. He kills the snake, uh, the, a huge deal. And, and somehow through this, he becomes associated with this symbol of this snake. Um, and since he is generally considered by the Greeks and the Romans to be the god of foretelling the future, it became associated with fortune tellers. Another way that this language is used is to describe a ventriloquist. Now those guys freak me out anyway, but here it's the idea of a body that's being, that's channeling a spirit, that's channeling a god. And so when these people who were afflicted this way would babble and have this involuntary speech going on, then they would consider that to be the voice of a god and they would try to discern what the Spirit was saying to them to tell the future. And the Greeks and the Romans were incredibly interested in this stuff. They loved this stuff. I mean, a, a general or, or any kind of military campaign guy would not go out on a campaign until he had consulted an oracle and had some kind of feel in his mind of what the future may hold. The emperor... Would not, uh, would not decree an important decree unless he had first consulted with one of these kind of oracles. What does that tell you about the profitability of this girl's affliction? I mean, you've got people high up with lots of money who, who crave this kind of stuff. This is the whoop, wharf and whoop of, uh, of Roman worldview, right? This is, their, this is their thing. This is how they view reality. Um, all right. So what's she doing here? I mean, she's a gold mine for employers, right? She's a gold mine for her owners. But what's she doing here? Heckling Paul. Heckling? What do you mean heckling? What is she saying there that's not true? She's saying what is true. She's saying what is true. What is that term, Most High God? Where do we hear that? Elohim? Elohim, uh, referring to Jehovah. In the Old Testament, we see that terminology used a lot. A way of salvation. The way of salvation. Sounds pretty accurate to me. What's the deal here? It annoys Paul? Gospels, I mean, weren't there similar situations with Christ where people with spirits would yell out the same thing, but Christ even commanded them to 
or you just cast them out. Or cast them out. Like command them just to stop because yeah. he's drawing attention the wrong way. Drawing attention the wrong way. I think that's a good way to put it. What is going on here? These are this is this is Philippi. Is this a Jewish town or a pagan town? This is pagan town. Most high God in Jewish understanding would be Jehovah. How would she know this? How would she know this term? As Zeus would How about the people around? As Zeus, right? So you're using terminology that kind of fits both worldviews. It's the same language that's being used, but it injects confusion into what the apostles are proclaiming. It's the same language. It's like talking to a Mormon about grace. <laughs> or a Roman Catholic about grace. It injects confusion into the gospel. Who is this Most High God? Well, they're importing into it Zeus, a way of salvation. That's a common language for Romans. They, they love talking about saviors, deliverance, salvation, deliverer, you know, whatever. That, that's commonly. In fact, the emperor called himself the savior of the people. He was very modest. He just wanted people to know that's what he's there for. They use that language a lot. How, again, uh, is that uh, uh, annoying to Paul? Well, a way of salvation makes it seem like it's one of many. And Paul is talking about exclusive God, an exclusive way of salvation. And you can't, in a pagan society, in a polytheistic society, with one little snippet, describe what they're doing, and it's injecting confusion and deceiving them. Even though technically what she's saying is true, it's deceiving the people by minimizing what they're doing. Jesus is not one God among many. And that's kind of the idea. He's annoyed by this because she's taking truth and perverting it. She's twisting it and, and, and causing the people to um, not pay attention to what they're doing and not... And not um, in, in injecting uh, muddiness into, um, into the deal. So Christianity is a thinking religion. And the truth that they're conveying could not be so easily condensed for these people who had embraced a polyethe polyethe polytheistic, I'm going to say it eventually, <laughs> polytheistic worldview. One thought also, some smart guys think that she, perhaps she was speaking this stuff sarcastically. She was you know, being real snarky about it and ridiculing and mocking them. And, and, there's, and there's some, some kind, of the, kind of the way you see where the prosecutors of Jesus are, are um, you know, beating him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Well, that's a true statement. But the way they're doing it is mocking and disrespectful and blasphemous. And so that's some of the idea that, that some of the guys think is going on here. So the demon in this girl is actually attempting to deceive by proclaiming a vaguely truthful statement and thereby, nulli thereby nullify the effectiveness of what Paul is preaching. Something that we need to remember is the gospel demands clarity. We've got to be clear in how we describe it, what we're, what we're preaching. We can't use vague, vague words. Um, it's a tool of the enemy to cloud the truth with mushy and undefined phrases. A lot of the controversy that you see in the early church, the, um, the, the, the I'm, I'm thinking uh, Nicaea and, and, uh, and other places, started from guys who were, the Arian controversy for instance, 
not Arian like we saw recently. I'm talking about Arian. The Arius was a guy who said that the Son of God, there was a time when the Son of God was not, was his catchphrase. And they would use language that was very similar to what, um, what the Orthodox guys would say, but, um, but, it was, but they would shift it a little bit. And so that clarity was the reason the council came together in order to, in order to, to, uh, to work through that. So similar issue here. Uh, so what does Paul do? Who does he sound like? Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. We call for it at least once a week. Um, yeah, you're about to answer Jesus. You didn't hear the most of the question. Very good. Um, so the real irony then happens, doesn't it? She is in her deceptiveness, the spirit in her is deceptively proclaiming one among many. And yet, by her silence, she proclaims the power of God more than she ever did by speaking. What else, other than shouting, disappears? What else other than shouting disappears? The Spirit leaves her. The Spirit leaves her. And what also leaves? Their prophet. Exactly. In fact, the word, the words that, uh, well, the verb here that, that Luke uses, he tags off of, the spirit left, it's, it's one verb, and then so did their prophet. They see that their prophet is gone, is the way it's translated in English, but it's the same verb. So both leave, the demon and the money. Don't draw any necessary conclusions from that, but that's the language that he's using is, is this, uh, is they're tied to, their prophet is tied to her affliction. They're, they're marketing her affliction. All right, uh, let's look at... Uh, Let's look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. We'll stop there for today. What's the core issue here? What are they really upset about? Loss the loss of money. Now think about... Well, and we see this often in Acts, don't we? It's the love of money. It's the, it's, the, it's the hunger for gain of money that is an impediment to the gospel. We'll see this again in Ephesus with the silversmiths uh, and the whole, the whole issue of there. We saw it with Simon the Magician early. Uh, we saw it with Ananias and Sapphira early. Often, it's viewed as an impediment to the gospel. Contrast that with Lydia. Right? Isn't this the distinction that Luke is drawing out here? Lydia, what, what was her response upon conversion? What's her natural response? To give. To give. And in, in what way? What do we see? She wanted them to stay with her. She was very generous with her hospitality. Her wealth became at their disposal. 
Uh, we saw later on, we, we, we looked at later on in the New Testament, where she is seen as a benefactor of Paul. Um, the Philippians are a very generous church. The, the natural response evidenced in the New Testament is the distinction between believer and non-believer is how you handle material goods. Who do you look like? The generosity that, that, that is displayed by Lydia is contrasted to the greed by these owners of this slave girl. I mean, she'd been delivered. She was afflicted. And rather than rejoice that God had done something in her to free her from this bondage, this real slavery that she was in, they're mad about losing the money off of it. There's the contrast. Um, it kind of reminds us of, again, Jesus in Mark 5 with the, with the, uh, the demoniac at Gerasene, I think is the name of the place, where he cast the demons out into the pigs. It says about 2,000 pigs on the hillside. Think about that. 2,000 pigs on the hillside run down into the sea and are all drowned. And how do the people respond? Hey, good job on that, you know, delivering the guy. We really, you killed our pigs. You're Jewish and you're worried about this. Um, they're making money off of Gentiles with the pigs. And so uh, th that's a thing for them. Get out of our area. You're costing us money. And it's the same issue here. It's the loss of property. Uh, the, the profit motive, again, we see it again and again. All right. Um, there are two types of leaders that are indicated in this passage. One, uh, we see magistrates, and the other is called rulers. Uh, the magistrates, typically in a Roman colony, you have two guys who would uh, handle the civil cases. And their whole thing is law and order. Dun, dun, they're, the, they're the law and order guys, right? <laughs> That's their whole thing. They hear these civil things, they make sure things are done rightly, and they, and, they, uh, and they want to keep peace and order. They're also rulers. These are the enforcers. These are guys that carry around rods. In fact, they're symbol for these guys. I, I, this is fascinating to me. The symbol for these guys is a bunch of rods in a bundle, and there's an axe head that comes out the middle, and it's tied in a red ribbon. Do you know? I did not know this. I didn't know this. Mussolini revive that symbol. It was called the fasces, is the, is the name of that symbol. He revived that symbol for his fascist movement no in uh. Italy during World War II. Isn't that amazing? Well, their symbol kind of shows you what kind of guys they are. Uh, they carried rods around and they weren't really uh, bashful about using them. And so the, the the authorities would empower these guys that if someone was causing a disturbance in the force, they could grab a rod and beat the mess out of them. And that's what happens. And Roman beatings, lashes with this kind of stuff, the, the language used here is actually rod, beat with a rod. It, it wasn't like the, the merciful Jewish beating <laughs> where it limited to uh, 40 minus 1, you know, that, that, that kind of idea. 39 lashes was, was how that was done in Jewish law. There was no limit under Roman law. It's just till your arm got tired. And so this is what they're facing. This is what they endure. And Paul talks about three times I was beat with rods. This is one of the times. The other two we don't have any record of. But he talked, I mean, it's beat till you're tired. What exactly is a rod? Yeah. Yeah. Just big old... 
Something like that. Maybe a little, not, not flared out. I mean, uh, maybe, I don't know. And they got creative. Puts a little symbol on the side of the rod. I don't know. So you have these two guys. Uh, in, incidentally, the, the, the rod-beating guys are called lictors in Latin, if you ever want to throw that down at a party. Um, so what are the charges? What are the charges? Yeah, you ever hear about getting licks at school? Yeah, that's, that's why. Um, what are the charges that they levy against the apostles here, Paul and Silas? Incidentally, let's stop for a second. Where are Timothy and Luke? No indication that they picked up Timothy and Luke. I wonder why that is. Maybe it has something to do with our first charge. What are the charges? They're Jews. So, so we've got Jews, number one. Two, disturbing the city. And what's the third one? Customs that are not lawful. The customs that are not lawful for Roman citizens. So we've got three charges. The first one, why is it significant that they're Jews? Why does that matter? City. They're not Roman citizens, right? These aren't Romans. I thought, I thought Paul would. They don't know that, though, do they? <coughs> so they're saying, that's why this becomes significant later on. These aren't Romans like us. They're not respectable. They're not thoughtful. They're not civilized. They have this aberrant understanding of reality. Uh, they are... Uh, they're, 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 they're traveling, wandering, dirty Jews who talk about this God that is anti the antithesis of what we believe. And it's, it, it, it's going to throw the city into chaos. Um, these are wandering Jews engaged in propagating some variation of their own perverse superstition. Uh, and, and why are they saying this? What, what benefit is this to throw that they're Jews out to this crowd and, 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 and to the magistrates? Romans hated Jews. Hated them. They were very anti-Semitic. Um, and they're throwing this out there to appeal to the latent... Pre There's no factual argument here. It's just appeal to prejudice. That's all it is. I'm so glad we're beyond that in our justice system. It's an amazing thing what we've been able to evolve to in justice it's 2,000 years. All right, so the Jews in Greek cities tended to live in their own little enclaves, their little ghettos. Uh, the, the, the practices of circumcision, not eating pork, and Sabbath observation appeared sort of narrow and superstitious to pagans. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? They claim that they're Jews throwed them out there as Jews, and the Jews are their most violent persecutors. And it may also be a reason why we don't see Luke and Timothy involved here. Luke is a Gentile, a Greek. Timothy's a half-Greek. They took the guys who most look like Jews and put them in front. Because it goes in with their argument. These guys need to be stopped. Let's, get the, let's whip up the crowd against a bunch of Jews. Uh, they're disturbing our city. Now, this is kind of argument that would be made again, you know, to the magistrates would, would be very interested in this. Again, not a substantive argument. It's, an, it's a vague allegation. No facts are given. They're just disturbing our city. How? Are you disturbing it or are they disturbing it? What led to the disturbance? There's none of this, there's not much investigation going on here to these allegations. Um, the third one, they advocate customs 
that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or, or practice. And this seems to be the only charge with some substance here. It was illegal to proselytize Roman citizens. Uh, they, it, they had a safe space for Roman citizens. They didn't want to be challenged with their own world. It was not consistent with what the state practiced. And so there's evidence that it really wasn't illegal empire-wide until about the second century. Um, but it may have been the case locally that you couldn't uh, proselytize Roman citizens. You, you see any mention of the healing of the girl or the financial loss here? No. These are arguments laid out just to inflame a crowd to get people uh, incited against Paul and Silas. And the whole motive is money. All right. So the magistrates see this aberrant religious practice as being a potential breach of the peace and then it might encourage unlawful practices or organizations. None of the charges are valid. They appeal to the anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish sentiment of the crowd and, the, and really a nationalistic, pro-Roman kind of feel. But, you know, that's as good of a reason as any to beat somebody, I guess. So, they don't wait for them to calmly disrobe in order to be beat. They rip their clothes off of them. They're in a frenzy. And they start beating them. Uh, and then they're given to our third person that's highlighted by Luke, the Philippian jailer. How is he treating them? His orders are to keep them safe. Keep them safe. Does he do that? At, at this point, does he do that? He puts them in prison, puts them in stocks. He puts them in stocks. He puts them in prison, and Luke makes a point that he puts them in the inner part of the prison, which is the dark, dank, you know, you got several layers of, of, uh, of walls and, and that kind of stuff. It was nearby where they had just been beaten, so he just throws them in this pit, basically, and puts them in stocks, and stocks of that time had several holes in the stocks. They put their legs in, and you could, you could spread them out, and it causes cramping, and, and it's, a, it's a torture device. Um, there's no indication by Luke that there was torture that went on, but the assumption is that there probably was some, because that's what it was used for. So if you put them in stocks, it keeps them from running, obviously, and it can be um, uh, a harsh, uh, uh, torturous kind of thing. So who's this jailer? Most likely he's a retired soldier who, who, who just maintains the, uh, the prison system there. Um, I love this. F.F. Bruce notes that while the training of a Roman soldier developed many fine qualities of character, these did not include much of the milk of human kindness. <laughs> the way he says that. So you, so you see three people so far. You see Lydia. You see this demon-possessed girl, slave. And now you see the Philippian jailer is highlighted. And we'll... we'll see more of him next next time all of them from very different backgrounds very different walks of life very different circumstances in which the gospel comes into their lives i don't 
There's no indication about the slave girl whether or not she was a believer. The, the, the implication most people draw from that is that she was freed from the demon and then, and then believed. But I think that's an assumption. We don't, we're not given that in the text. But she's certainly touched by the power of Christ there. And now we have this hardened Philippian jailer that we'll see next week. It takes an earthquake and the threat of imminent death to get him to consider the need for his own salvation. Different People, same gospel. What do we draw from that? What do we see from that? Can you think of situations in your own life where you, where you just naturally think, ah, that person's too far gone. There's no way. They're, they're not right in the head. They're too rich. They're too self-satisfied. They've lived a really hard life. You should see their tattoos. Don't we naturally think that way? And yet Luke is drawing on these pictures, these narratives, in this narrative, the gospel is powerful to affect anyone. All we're required to be is faithful. We're called to be faithful and not to lose heart. Um, all right. I know it's a little shorter this morning. It's 10 o'clock. Any, any comments, questions? Fruit to be thrown. I heard that like, the stalks are actually like they hang upside down too. I could be wrong, but I heard that. I don't, I don't know. That wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I, it's amazing the various ways that people invent to cause other people discomfort. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times as Reformed theology people, we kind of say, oh, I'll just kind of present the gospel to some people because God is, God is going to say that's his job, it's not mine, it's the Holy Spirit. But the same person that wrote Romans chapter 9 is proselytizing or proselytizing these people. Mm -hmm. And he's presenting the gospel to Lydia, to the jailer, to... I mean, he's standing his ground. He's preserving the gospel, and that's everybody. Yep. That's, that that calls me to action because mm -hmm. I don't. I guess there's kind of this this idea in the back of my mind that oh, I, I don't really need to hit the streets and present the gospel. Just kind of you know, oh, as I'm going, just nonchalantly, I'm going to worry about those you know the other things that are more important, mm -hmm. and just kind of present the gospel. Eh. Yeah. But. That sure doesn't seem, I mean, his mission was to go down to the place of prayer every single day and to present the gospel to the lost. And to present it clearly. I mean, there is this idea that's crept in, I think, to Western churches of just live a good life and they'll want to know why. Really? Yeah. I, that seems to be a better Mormon tactic. They got, a, they got the cred on that stuff, you know, more, more many times than we do. Well, ultimately, that kind of thing only affects people that you're with on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Because Joe Blow on the street doesn't see the way you right. live your life. Right, right, right. And it's also, and it's also, I think, a more subtle form of these are servants of the Most High God showing you the way of salvation. It's not clear because it's just good stuff. I mean, we had a very good man who was Buddhist, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being nice. We're Mormon. Being nice. And they kept their yard pretty trim. <laughs> it was great. No pun intended. Yeah. No, don't be a jerk because that because there are enough obstacles to the gospel anyway. Obviously, but just being nice and not providing clarity as to what proclaiming what the message is. We're in sin. We're born in Adam. We will face a judge. Thanks be to God, He's provided an atonement, a sacrifice, a substitute for us. Trust Him. You're made right with Him. If you don't, you face Him. Don't face Him alone. There's clarity there. It's not, hey, this is my truth. No, it is the truth. It's the only truth that we can anchor on what He's revealed. Christ raised is the truth, and it shines light on everything else. And we live in the light of that proclamation that the king is raised and he and he is not this isn't an invitation the gospels it's not an invitation it's a command and you'll see this in in acts 17 he says he commands everyone to repent and believe it's a command by a king who's conquered clarity in the gospel and trusting that the gospel affects anyone I think is is really kind of what we can pull from this this morning. Um, all right, it's ten oh eight. Kevin. Yes, sir. Uh, getting, I guess, getting ahead a little bit. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Uh, they witness to the jailer, and he seems to come to believe in Christ. Yeah. Uh, doesn't that show that uh, even when we're beaten and put in stocks, God has a plan? Yeah. In every circumstance, there is before God an opportunity to display the worth of Him mm-hmm. in spite of what we're going through, uh, external or internal. There is an opportunity to display the worth of Him. And you see this again and again with Paul. He was called to suffer. I mean, what an entrance exam, you know? He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus tells Agabus, go to Paul, pray for him, and I have shown him and will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I'm checking out at that point. If I could. But God transformed Paul's heart where anything was worth it. Being beaten till the guy's arm gets tired is worth it to proclaim Jesus from jail. And we'll see in jail how they respond. Um, All right. Good. Well, let's pray. Who's leading music this morning? TJ. TJ's leading, so we'll make him a little bit less stressed by getting you guys over there a little bit earlier. Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for the beauty of Christ, the excellencies of our risen King, who calls us to faithfulness, calls us to proclaim a clear gospel, knowing that by your Spirit, anyone is a mission. 
I thank you that you know who they are. I thank you that we don't. And that trusting you with every person that we clearly present the gospel to is, again, our opportunity to show our, our faith in your sovereignty, in your goodness, in your mercy, that every opportunity we have to point to Jesus is an expression of hope. It's an expression of trust in you. Would you help us do that more faithfully? Would you give us more opportunities to be faithful in that way? God, I thank you for this group. I thank you that they uh, drive through a, a torrential rain to come here this morning and hear your word. And I pray that as we go into the next service, that you would be glorified, <clears throat> that our hearts would soar with the beauties of Jesus and the, and the, the magnificence of the gospel, and that we would look at the table this morning thankful that in my place condemned he stood and would proclaim it to others. Come to Jesus. Come to faith in Him. Trust Him and Him alone. There is no other way. Make us faithful. Make us joyful. And continue to grow us up to look like Him more and more and more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.